Hello, Whiskey Files, and welcome to another episode of Pot Still Radio. Steve Glergachtina, Falchon, Kugu, Hector, Degron, Quarantine, Postal Radio. To Ohers Urmanu, Avelesh, Ambassador, Fwishke, John Cashman. So, Falchon, Dion, Show, eh, hey, John? Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm Not delighted. too bad at all. Delighted yeah. to have you on the show. Yeah, we've, we've talked about it a few times and uh, we never quite got around to just linking in, but I suppose now when everyone's at home, we have this opportunity. So, uh, no, happy, happy to uh, have a chat with you today. Perfect. So to all of you out there in podcast land, welcome to another episode of the Quarantine Edition of Pot Still Radio. Uh, this is episode five, and today I am sitting down with whiskey industry veteran, uh, Mr. John Cashman. And But I would like to say a bit of a shout out to our sponsors before we kick off. So irishmalts.com, of all the latest and greatest Irish whiskies, gins and putchings delivered straight to your door. Visit irishmalts.com to view their full range. And the Bill Phil, the triple distilled peated single malt by WD O'Connell Whiskey Merchants, a different kind of Irish. Follow O'Connell Whiskey across all platforms or visit WD O'Connell for more details. And what's your treat this week? Why not enjoy a Cloen 10 year old cast strength whiskey or a delicious flame fed pot stilled putching? All available online. Check out cloendistillery.com for more information. And remember, both Cloen and the WD O'Connell whiskies are available on irishmalts.com. So, John, lovely to have you here on the show. As I said, we've been trying to get together for a little while, but it's uh, it's worked out now, which is great, and that we have the time to be supposed to be uh, quarantined virtually together. So, for the people out there that don't know you, I suppose, could you give us a little rundown of what your, I suppose, uh, previous position was, and then kind of how you got into the industry? Hmm. Well, I suppose most recently I was um, global brand ambassador for Irish whiskey with uh, BM Centauri, um, having <clears throat> worked my way through from uh, Cooley Distillery uh, back in the old independent days when the Irish whiskey industry was very different to where it looks today. So uh, I got into the industry, like a lot of people, like yourself, um, the old European orientation program, or uh, it was European orientation program when I did it, um, export orientation program run by IBEC today and a phenomenal program and I got into that straight out of college studied European studies with languages French and German Spanish and uh, yeah applied for the IBEC scheme um, and was picked up by Irish distillers by Jemison um, as a what was I 23 yeah 23 years of age and that was with Michael Cunningham and another guy called Michael Michael Bore, a Danish guy who um, was my first kind of mentor in this business. And uh, the two Michaels, uh, as they were known in Irish distillers, they shared an office together and uh, they met with me individually. And then uh, Michael Bore offered me a position to head to Denmark, um, his his home country, um, open up the market for uh, all Irish whiskies at that stage. It was back in those days. It wasn't just uh, the IDL products of today, the Powers, um, the Jamison, the Redbreast. Back then, it was also Bushmills. It was it was Paddy as well. Um, so, so went what out year there. did you head out to Denmark? I was 90. I was taken on in 97 um, and uh, went out to Denmark in January 98 and uh, spent a, a full year out there. Um, and then... Towards the end of the contract, um, I, Irish distillers were happy at what I was doing. Um, I think it was the largest percentage growth of any any market that year. Um, and um, the the company in Denmark, World Brands, World Brands Denmark, they were called. They were also happy. So they offered me a, a second year, which was pretty much unheard of at the uh, of the time. Um, and I took on more responsibilities. I took on more of a sales role within the distributor over there, um, calling to. Uh, uh, the on a lot of well mostly entree accounts in Copenhagen, which again as a, a young guy in his early twenties was a, a nice 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 place to be in a nice position to have you know yeah absolutely um, so uh, yeah so I was uh, a second year a second contract there and then um, it came to the crunch was I going to stay in Copenhagen or come home and uh, I decided to come home and move to Dublin I'm not from Dublin I'm from Wicklow. I'm from a from a farm and uh, Dublin was 
just like any international city for me, I didn't know the city very well at all. So I moved back to Dublin. Within a day or two of moving home, I got a call from Peter Galogli, who was running Irish Distillers, um, domestic sales team at the time, um, offering a position as a as a uh, a sales a sales guy, um, relief sales rep primarily, um, just just areas where they needed maybe that extra bit of attention, or an area where someone was going on holidays. I just come in and work that work that market, and did that for yeah about two, three years, I think. Great experience um, working on-premise in Ireland. And this is, you know, uh, turn of the millennium, uh, around 2000, 2001. Again, Irish whiskey market is very different. It's it, it, it's funny for Irish distillers back then as a domestic sales guy, the whiskies weren't really important. More important were some of the wine brands, the Hussar Vodka, um, Cork Dry Gin. Yeah, West Coast Cooler, uh, Cork Dry Gin. Um, Kiskadi Rum, and uh, there's one that not many will remember. And the the whiskies were, yeah, they, you know, they were almost a a side a side thought. And it was it it was a bizarre scenario having come from whiskey being the sole focus when you're abroad, and seeing the growth potential and seeing people's interest in Irish whiskey to coming home to Ireland, and seeing that Irish whiskey was not really on the radar for for a the team or the company that owned it, but B, for the the on-trade in general. Um, you know, yeah, they'd have their gems and have their powers, they'd have their bushmills, their patty, whatever. But that was it. They weren't really that interested in doing promotions. They weren't interested in trying to get new consumers. It was just something that was there. So it was a bit of a learn. It was a good learning curve from that. And then I left that business around the time Cuisine de France was starting up. And I uh, started working with Cuisine de France um, in uh, the basically their hospitality side of the business so dealing with chefs every day of the week uh, trying to sell them par-baked bread <laughs> which uh yeah i've been chased out of uh, kitchens with uh, meat cleavers a few times but uh you know yeah so uh worked there for a few years uh, but i suppose having come from the drinks industry having cut my teeth in the drinks industry was always in the background um always kind of yeah, I kind of always wanted to get back into it. Saw an opportunity working with Gilby's, uh, again, sales rep for Dublin, and, and worked with Gilby's, and then just happened to get into a meeting with John Teeling one day. And uh, John, obviously, being the industry icon uh, that he is, um, I'd say almost everyone listening to this has probably heard John Teeling's stories, or if they've been to any trade show in Ireland, they've probably met John Teeling. And uh, I met I met John and Jack and uh, came out of that meeting and got a phone call about 20 minutes later um, saying, uh, yeah, we, we want to give you a job. Uh, we don't have a role for you, but we don't want you working for anyone else in the whiskey industry. So come in on Monday and uh, start with us. And that was 2006. Cooley Distillery was... Uh, it was beginning to change. Jack was beginning to take some of the um, some of the some of the reins at that stage. Jack had a, I suppose, he had a vision, the vision of a second generation in the industry. And uh, I, I I started off as business development um, within the Irish market, and within probably about six months, I took over the Irish market, ran ran Ireland, dealing with. Um, on and off um, sales and then the key accounts because back then a big part of the business for Cooley Distillery was the private label. It was a good source of income uh, for Cooley. I used to always tell an analogy that, you know, if I, I started a business with Aldi and um, what the profit we'd make on that, which wasn't a huge profit, of course, but what we'd make on that would be invested in our branded um, business. So the likes of Kilbegan and Connemara and Turconnell. And uh, that would also cover a sales trip for me to go to America to uh, to do um, to sales calls and do promotions and do education. So it was, uh, yeah, it was. They they were great days, really, really great. Just seeing the people starting to pay attention to to Irish whiskey around the time when, through all the great work that Irish distillers have been doing internationally. I mean, Jamison was really making strides in the United States around that time. Um, doors were being opened up for us all over the world, thanks to hard work by Perna Ricard. And it was up to, to me and a few others to uh, literally, you know, 
try to get a foot into that door and uh and and make make room at the table for ourselves so yeah it was they were they were interesting days they were they were fun they were fun and at those times when you were going to the states were you doing kind of private sales calls or would you have been doing the kind of more recognized formal whiskey events or tastings and that kind of thing bit of everything yeah literally um it was you might you might build it around a uh, a whiskey live or a uh, whiskey fest or one of those big big events um so the big whiskey events of course were like yeah whiskey fest chicago whiskey fest new york san francisco um so you might go around that time and then just tag as much on as you possibly could if we'd got a listing with one of the large chains you might spend a week literally visiting every chain talking to staff talking to managers i remember uh, once we we got a listing with total wine in in uh in florida um massive massive chain um and i just i flew into flew into orlando one day and literally did a loop of the peninsula calling to all the 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 management meetings um within the stores and doing standing and promoting and and all of that and uh and that that was the nature of our business back then um we you know cooley was a small um independent company um didn't have much money for marketing didn't have again an analogy i used to tell people to put it into context um when i was running the business in ireland uh, our entire marketing budget one year was globally was less than what uh, jamison would have spent on the dublin film festival so you know you you may do with what you had and and, and for me and it's always been what I believe when it comes to this industry. It's a social industry. It's a it's a meeting people industry, and it is liquid on lips. It's 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 getting in front of people, talking about the product, letting them try it, and letting them make up their own mind whether they like it or not. And you can see it immediately. And, and I'm sure Matt, you you've discovered this yourself when you do a tasting and you you're looking at someone and you just see in their eyes, their eyes light up because they've just tasted something that they weren't expecting. And something that, you know, has, has essentially changed their life insofar as it's now a new experience they're going to take with them, that they're going to enjoy again and again in the future that they never thought they would they would have got. And you can see that happening and it's, it's phenomenal. And, and those days it was it was wearing out shoe leather. It was traveling literally from coast to coast. It was meeting, it was greeting, it was doing tastings, it was giving samples, it was standing in liquor stores at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, um, you know, a half a dozen people coming through. But if you got two or three of those to buy your bottle, look, it's great. It's brilliant. And, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Thoroughly enjoy that and still really enjoy that part of the business. But, uh, yeah, so we, you know, we 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 were doing we were doing that we were doing a private label we were trying to get our 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 branded business out there um, it was very much guerrilla marketing it was it was um it was really you know nothing 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 crazy nothing out of the ordinary but we had to think outside the box at the same time so i built up good relationships um in certain media um throughout ireland um, so, for example, in the run-up to uh, Rugby Internationals, in the in the final week before the Rugby International, the publisher would call me and say, "John, I have a page left. You know, do you want it in the in the in the match day program? You know, so you'd get that for maybe four hundred euro or five hundred euro and have a big, a big, uh, big advert. You know, that other brands would be looking to is going, geez, how did you know Cooley get this? You know, so it's." It, it was great. It was it was individual little sponsorships, sponsoring small little things where you could get the the biggest return. And 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 my 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 way of of sponsorship primarily was product, you know, because that's all we had. we didn't have money, but we had product. And you might sponsor something for a few bottles and uh, and and get something out of that. And when we would spend a bit of money, would be when we started winning all the big awards, you know, two thousand and eight. Cooley Distillery named the world's best distillery. You know, first time an Irish, Irish, Irish distillery had ever won that uh, through Whiskey Magazine. Kilbegan 15 being named the world's best blended whiskey. 
still to this day, no other Irish whiskey, I think, is one that you can correct me on that if I'm being, if, if, that's, if that's not true. But, you know, massive, massive accolades that were unheard of up to those days in, in, in Irish whiskey. So we'd, we'd spend a few quid then, uh, take a few ads. Uh, but, you know, we didn't have the money to have a great d- design of an ad. I remember throwing it together on paper and getting someone on a MacBook just to put it together for me. You know, very, very basic. Um, but we throw that into a few magazines. And, uh, and then uh, we did something quite nasty once, which I'm sure I've some of my uh, some of my friends and colleagues on the Simmons Court Road, probably still haven't forgiven me for. Um, we we wanted that little ad that I'd made up. I got put on one of those um, mobile trucks. You know, you see them again on match days around Dublin. They drive around. So we told them to just drive around Dublin. I think we had enough money for sort of two days or three days. Just drive around Dublin. But um, if you if you want a sandwich or you want to stop for lunch, there's a great spot on the Simmons Court Road. Um, that you could just pull in there. <laughs> so uh, left in front of the Irish distillers' offices. <laughs> in front of Irish distillers' offices at lunchtime when they were coming out to go for their sandwich, and uh, I think he was there about twenty minutes till a phone call came through to uh, John Teeling's office, one six two Clontarf Road, and uh, our uh, our financial director uh, took the call, and it was. Uh, no, very good. Yeah, congratulations on the award. But uh, please, uh, PFO, will you just move it? So, uh, <laughs> you know, there were just just things like that. It was fun. It was it was it was a bit of fun. Um, you, I look back at them now because I can. They were great days. They were they were tough. Um, it's it, it's tough when you're always you're always just scrambling. It's constantly scrambling, and it takes a lot out of you. But they were brilliant. It was you, you. You got so much um, satisfaction from little wins, a new listing somewhere, uh, seeing your brand for the first time on a shelf in Dunn's or Tesco, Dublin Airport before it became like the loop and this 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 brilliant uh, retail opportunity for for all whiskey brands today. But back in the old days, it was I'd, I'd call in on a Monday and a Friday, talk to staff fight for space literally fight for space you're moving bottles to try to get your facings but to see that beginning to 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 work in your favor and within a year within a year and a half have daa tell you that you're now the second largest spirit supplier to them was phenomenal you know that was that was just great feeling or coming up with an idea like the um our famous miniature four pack the uh, one of the first sort of really quality, classy-looking four-pack that you get with the it fitted perfectly into a, into a carry-on, into the front pocket of a carry-on, or into a handbag, a metal um, um, a magnet clasp on it looked brilliant with a Kilbegan, a green ore, uh, a Turconnell, and a Connemara, and that coming about just from a conversation with the buyer and being able to turn it around and, and, and see that on the shelf and then the buyer telling us that in about 2008 2009 in dublin airport it was the second largest selling item after bottled water in dublin airport wow you know yeah, unbelievable <laughs> yeah um and, and just just those days great great days great days and obviously those days built up to the um, to Beam coming in and, uh, and 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 taking taking on Cooley Distillery, which was not unexpected. Um, there had been lots of interest, needless to say, um, for Cooley. But um, I'll never forget John Teeling uh, calling me down to his office the day before um, it, this was hitting the press. And now I knew it was happening because there were guys from Beam in our in our office for the previous three months, you know. So it was no big surprise. Uh, no, no, you don't see any Americans up there in that office, you know. Okay, okay. Um, but he put it. He put a. I thought a great turn of phrase. He he said, John, I feel the same today as I did the day I walked my daughter up the aisle. Um, I didn't particularly want to do it. But you have to let them go, and you have to let leave them have their own life. And that was John's way with Cooley. He brought it as far as he could um, with limited resources, and then it was the hope that this new life for Cooley could, you know, get the money into it and start 
start bringing the places that up to then we haven't been able to do you know so yeah it was yeah good days so when you were going around the states and europe and, and whatnot i suppose what was the kind of consumer reaction to the peated element as well um i know that the consumer knowledge would have been you know not as it is today but obviously the kind of the outlier of the kind of portfolio of irish whiskies at the time was definitely the connemara more you know akin to the scotch whiskey was it easier to be picked up that way or kind of what was that was like Mm. to be selling well i always said the hardest market in the world for for us back then to sell our brands was the domestic irish market Uh, those days it was very insular looking um and you know we as we as an irish people have this have this strange belief that if we haven't heard of it it must be shite you know and unfortunately that 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 back then was very much so when it came to came to whiskies and everyone liked their the brand that they grew up with or the brand their family drank um you never really had that in the us or any other market people were far more open to trying new things and Connemara was very much an easy easy sell because they understood what peated whiskey was more so than they understood what Irish whiskey was so this was a style of whiskey that they knew and the fact that it was Irish didn't really matter to them at all because as 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 you know Matt from your time in the US half the time they refer to Irish whiskey as scotch anyway. You know? Irish so scotch. Yeah. What scotch are you selling today? So what's this Irish scotch like? You know, so it, it, it was far easier in the in the US to to get traction for, for Connemara than certainly it was in, in Dublin at the time, you know. Um, but uh, no, thankfully, things have changed. Things have changed. And was there much focus on Europe at the time or continental Europe, should I say? Um, Germany and France and the Benelux. Germany always was a very strong market for the Kilbegan brand um, due to the distributor at the time. Germany, uh, uh, Cooley had the same distributor in Germany from pretty much almost the, the very beginning. Um, so they had they'd done a lot of work with, with the brands and Kilbegan was, was doing very, very well there. Um, France being just a massive whiskey market was always good. Another side of France, the Connemara brand had great recognition due to an old folk song called Le Lac du Connemara um, by a guy called, I think his name is Jacques Sardou, I can't remember. It's it's the French equivalent of, of, I don't know, the most popular folk song in Ireland, Molly Malone or or the, what you call it, the, the yeah, whatever famous folk song. So everyone in France knows this song. So they'd see the brand and they'd think automatically of Le Lac du Connemara. And uh, it was free PR for us, basically. And the amount of times I've I've been at a tasting and I introduced Connemara in France or French people in the distillery back in the day in in Kilbegan. And as a group, they just start singing this song. Uh, (laughs) So it's it's that recognizable. And then the Benelux, um, again, just very well-educated whiskey people. Um, They know their whiskies maybe more so for the malt side of the business but you know in in the in in Cooley that was covered with the Draconal finishes or indeed you know the Connemara so you could you could talk to them at their level but Europe wasn't certainly Germany Germany was 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 number one outside of uh outside of the US for us um and then just trying to get the grips of the Irish market so I changed the entire route to market for Ireland um as as, as part of my part of my role and looked at how um, the Irish market was performing and I didn't think it was performing as it could. I thought there was there was a far more potential because, you know, the likes of Irish distillers back in, you know, were, were, were targeting on premise. So people were seeing a few more whiskies, but we weren't getting there. We weren't we weren't getting our share. So I just ripped up the model and, and I put in an entire new one and, and it worked. We fastest growing Irish whiskies for about two or three years here in the domestic uh, domestic um, market here in Ireland. So yeah, 2008, 2009, 2010, things were beginning to change. And then, yeah, then it was 
all changed, changed, changed utterly. A Terrible Beauty was born with, uh, with Beam in 2012. And what was the kind of change in dynamic between the kind of independent days into the Beam and then after that into the Beam Suntory uh, elements? There were two sides to it, I suppose. Firstly, there was um, an influx of money. There was, there were, we could market. Um, we could we could get it out there. We had from my last days in Cooley, I think on the road, it was probably just myself and Stephen Teeling and Jack the odd time to the day after Beam, there were 2,000 people around the world. So just that alone is, uh, you know, a massive, massive difference. The downside to it is you lose your speed of change. You have an idea and you want to implement it with Cooley. I have an idea. I talk to Jack. Jack would say, okay, let's do it. Within a matter of weeks, it was there. It was on the shelf. With a large multinational, it doesn't happen that quickly. Um, there's lots of different things to go through, um, which in, its, in itself is, you know, there are positives to that as well because it means if you get through all the phases in a large multinational and it hits the shelf, it deserves to be there. You know, it's not going to fail because they don't work like that. In Cooley, you'd make mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. You try not to make them again. You keep going on. So that was that was that was the biggest single change. I thought it was, um, yeah, it was just that that speed of getting things done. Things were things were much slower, but. You know, you get to the States with Beam, you had sales team, you had the sales people who wanted to learn, people who really wanted to get behind it. Um, and in that regard, it was that that was great. That was absolutely brilliant. And then how long was it between the Beam purchase from the Suntory purchase of Beam? And mm. was there much of a change over in the kind of teams and management and day to day at that point? <sighs> Any multinational does generally change every two years um, across the board. And Suntory, I can't remember, I think it was 2014, possibly Suntory came in, 2014, 2015. I can't remember exactly. And what year was the Beam purchase? Uh, 2012, January 2012. Suntory change was, there was a new attention to detail that maybe hadn't been there well, was there, but maybe it was just more, more obvious with the Suntory uh, days. This I I thoroughly enjoyed um, working with with Suntory. Well, I've enjoyed all the companies I've worked for, um, but Suntory very much so because I loved meeting some of my Japanese colleagues and having just just downloading them their passion, seeing how they work, how they operate talking with, um, you know, the the chief blender from Suntory, Sinji Fukuyu, and uh, just spending time in his company, you know, just fascinating, fascinating character. But Suntory, I think they very much focus on premium across the board. And when it came to their Irish portfolio, they certainly looked for bringing back some of the, that premium liquids that had, you know, been started in Cooley days and maybe hadn't been as uh, overtly obvious in the Beam days and allowed us to start bringing out teenage editions of Turconnell again. The Connemara, so 22, I can't remember. 22, yeah, was it? Yeah, definitely Connemara. was Connemara 22. Yeah, right? the Connemara 22. You yeah, know, some of some of those, some of those, um, you know, very much uh, uh, double-digit premium Irish whiskies, and that was great. And that, you know, also manifested itself in um, uh, me being allowed to finally <laughs> get the. Uh, Get the Quebec and small batch rye and the the pot still get those over the line, which you know there were there were years where we thought they were going to disappear, but uh, be sold off to the whiskey society or somebody that could bottle them and the... yeah yeah yeah. Um, but you know, I, at one stage, I, I I was terrified they were going to be just blended into Quebec. Um, would have been a very good batch of Quebec, but uh, 
it uh, you know the, there was there was a, a refound belief in Irish whiskey um, from Suntory and, and and from a, a new business model that we put in place. And I was allowed to suggest these new liquids because it was also around the time Noel Sweeney, unfortunately, um, when he left the business, there was a, a very much a uh, this this large amount of knowledge exited the business at the same time. Irish knowledge. Um, obviously, we had colleagues all over the world we can we could uh, we could talk with. So I got more involved than um, suggesting liquids coming up with some of the new releases over the past the past few years and. Uh, and the small batch rye being the classic example of that when i i think i i danced a happy dance when i i was finally told okay john uh right we let you do something with it now what are you going to call it it's like oh right okay yeah because the technical file had come in and uh and then discluded it from being called a single pot still exactly exactly whereas when it was distilled it was distilled as one well as a pure pot still so that they were fun days but 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 that also showed the the versatility of the technical file that not many people talk about at the same time um and the versatility that the irish industry has i suppose over over some of the others um, not all of them but some of the others insofar as we could release it um that liquid saw the light of day we just couldn't call it one of the spokes of irish whiskey being single pot still but we could release it we could bring it out and uh, we could let people try it and you know i'm delighted we could because as you know from any of the friday night trams or saturday night sips or any of those it's still popping up week after week and people are still loving that liquid you know i said i have two bottles in my in my cabinet right now so yeah <laughs> actually yeah, okay. the, the the single pot still is on my on my wish list if 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 and when i buy my next bottle now it'll definitely be on on the list Good. I do want to take this moment just to thank our sponsors once again. So Cologne, the true distillery, dedicated transparency, cast strength bottlings with integrity and with any any color or filtration. Cologne Distillery, the past and future of Irish pot still. And the Bill Phil, triple distilled, peated, single malt by WD O'Connell Whiskey Merchants, a different kind of Irish. Follow O'Connell Whiskey across all platforms or visit wdoconnell.com for more details. And irishmalts.com, new whiskies, old whiskies, and everything in between, delivering to Ireland, the UK, Europe, and most US states. Visit Irish Malts to browse the full range, including all the Cologne and WD O'Connell whiskies. So you're saying that there was a lot more kind of focus on the premium style spirits, and you were able to bring out some of those, um, this was more unusual Kilbegan spirits as well. And I suppose it was interesting interacting with the kind of the global uh, Suntory team and it was funny I was in Japan last year and, and you yourself helped me get into the Yamazaki distillery which is kind of famously sold out for many 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 months ahead and wandering through the Yamazaki distillery uh, it was amazing to see a bottle of Konamara just in their kind of global lineup which was quite cool yeah. um, so what was it like working with that kind of global sales force then at that point because obviously with the the beam days you kind of got the western hemisphere pretty, <coughs> pretty well uh, hooked up but now it was truly kind of a global sales force yeah um it was brilliant um there's you know personally brilliant i got to see parts of the world i never thought i'd see uh, um because around that same time the uh Suntory takeover my role very much grew and whereas i had been solely focused on irish whiskey I now became uh, Beam's global ambassador for all whiskies, with the exception of the US. Uh, the US had its own ambassadorial team. But that physically meant that one day I could be in Frankfurt talking about Jim Beam whiskey or Maker's Mark. That weekend I could be in Hong Kong with a bottle of Bowmore uh, Mizunara cask. In fact, one week I do recall something like that happening. Um, <laughs> I was I was in... Uh, I went to Tokyo, flew on a Friday to Tokyo, got there on a Saturday, did a show on a Sunday, flew back from, to uh, it was an Irish whiskey show. It was the first time there's been an Irish whiskey masterclass in the in the Tokyo, Tokyo Whiskey Festival, which was cool as well. So flew back on the Monday, got home here Tuesday, was home on Wednesday, flew out to Frankfurt on Thursday for Inter, Inter Whiskey Frankfurt. That was Friday, Saturday, Saturday night, flew back to Hong Kong to launch i think it was the mizunara 
in the oyster bar in one of the top hotels in 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 hong kong and there for a few days so it was it, they were crazy crazy days and uh it, but still enjoy them you know i was seeing places i never thought i'd see which which was good and traveling around southeast asia with a bottle of uh, bowmore mizunara is not a not a hard slog by any stretch of the imagination but the other side to what you alluded to there not only the a global a truly global sales force you also had a truly global brains trust one of the one of the last brands that 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 Noel was involved with before he left was um, the the changing of the Kilbegan single grain from okay it had been the famous green or eight year old and became the Kilbegan eight year old and then it became Kilbegan single grain and Kilbegan single grain I was fortunate Noel asked me to come in on the project so there was Noel uh, there was myself um, there was a, one of the distillers from Yamasaki can't remember his name now um there was the then master blender for bowmore and the um overall blender of all beam centauri scottish brands as well so five of us came together to play around with different grain liquids and uh came up with what became the uh, kilbegan single grain which was a very very complex uh single grain whiskey with a few different finishes that many people don't realize and that to me really showed the power of a large multinational like that where you can get this brains trust together to assist with uh you know an irish whiskey which was uh which which was great um so yeah there's two sides of it you had you know yeah sales team all over the world but you had this you could call on that brains trust or you know i, I could be doing an event with with bill samuel senior of, of makers mark and just ask, asking him questions and listening to him and coming back and talking to the team in Ireland saying, look, this is what Bill Samuels just said. Maybe this is something we should be looking at. Maybe something we should try um, with our brands. Because, you know, when you get to meet Bill Samuels or Fred No or Sinji Fukuyo or, or Rachel Barry or John Campbell, all these, you know, world-renowned names when it comes to whiskey making, you're going to learn from them. And if there's something you can take and put it into what you're doing yourself, it's, it's a good, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Can you give us a little bit more information about the Kilbeg and Sing Grants? Actually, I was at the start of this year, I was with the Kilbeg ambassador for uh, Massachusetts star daily. Mm. And we, we definitely imbibed on enough uh, Kilbeg and Sing grain and it is dynamite. Like, mm. I was so wildly impressed by the mm. Kilbegan single grain. And it's, yeah. and it's very cool to hear what kind of brain activity went into actually mm. creating it. But I was absolutely blown away with the Kilbegan single grain when I was trying it there at the start of this year. So what was the kind of, you know, formula that went into the, creating that product? Yeah, I can't, I can't remember the exacts, of course. But, I, you know, and obviously I can't give away too much secrets. Um, but got a bit of stick at the time about uh the fact that the age statement was dropped and it was uh you know went from kilbegan a to kilbegan single grain but if i recall over 40 percent of the liquid was double digit going into this new new product and it there would certainly it wasn't just the old one was all bourbon barrel and it's a phenomenal phenomenal whiskey um i still you know i almost lost friendships and some of my mates who all they would drink is kilbegan eight-year-olds and uh you know i stopped and they were like jesus cash what are you doing you know come on what are we gonna drink but this one it's um from memory there were there was some virgin oak barrel there was some px there was bordeaux red wine and i think a touch of sherry Oloroso as well, as well as the majority, of course, being um, uh, expert in barrels, which would have been uh, standard enough for Cooley. Yeah, so I think that's it. So it was it was very complex, a very complex um, blend of, of different uh, of, of different grain whiskey from Cooley that's finished in in different. I think and I can't remember, but some of it, I think, is maybe exclusively matured in some of those barrels. I, I just can't fully remember. It's been a, right. a while since, but it gives you an idea. Yeah, well, that's a lot of a lot of work that seems to almost not be recognized on on 
by the kind of consumers of the liquid itself. Mm. But as you said, like liquid to lips, I was mm. absolutely blown away by it. Mm. I couldn't believe and how the, brilliant that was. Yeah, and the, the strength was increased as well. I think it was 43% as opposed to 40%. Um, so that also just gave a little bit of a kick because um, especially in the in the us it, it really took on in, in in cocktail culture and especially uh a lot of irish coffees actually be made with uh, quebec and single grain now and it, it, it works pretty well works pretty well yeah nothing wrong with that so having this kind of global footprint where was the strangest place you found your irish whiskies wow there must uh, have been some head turning moments yeah, well, certainly the first one was exactly what you said uh, when you were in Yamasaki. I remember the first time I went to Yamasaki or Hakshu, uh, was a, I did both of them kind of within a few days. So I can't remember which one I went to first. I think it might have been Hakshu. And I uh, went in and there was Connemara for sale um, in the Hakshu distillery. It was just like, wow, how is, you know, how is this come about? Um, but apart from that, it was always, always a thrill um, in somewhere like Tokyo. And uh, and you can like very literally get lost in Tokyo very very easily as as you probably know haven't haven't been there it's just an amazing city um, but a few times I was left without a chaperone um, which was <laughs> thoroughly enjoyable and it just meant I could go into bars that I wasn't being brought into you know yeah. um which in any city that's what you want to do you want to and in a city like tokyo it's going to be safe anyway uh, but you want to visit other bars um, not on the milk round you know and uh going into some of those bars and and seeing Connemara on the shelf you know just blew my mind uh, absolutely just blew my mind other places um i was in indonesia which needless to say would not have a huge amount of um Bars, anyway, being nope. a Muslim country. Um, but I remember going into one, um, and, and it's a famous bar called Prohibition, and um, an amazing bar that uh, you flick a switch and it turns around and everything comes out, but if it turns back, it just has the name Prohibition on it. Beautiful, beautiful bar front. And it's a restaurant and bar. Um, and uh, just going in there, and, and, and he pushes the button, and the bar tilts around. And there again was a Connemara whiskey, and I was like, "Was wow. it in Jakarta?" Jakarta, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, quite a famous bar, actually. And uh, Jakarta was mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. I did a, a good few seminars in Jakarta, but you spent half the day stuck in a car because just the traffic is so extreme and sheer population everywhere. I remember on a Skype call to my wife, my first night in Jakarta and just saying, I've never been in a city with so many people and that every possible space of land that there is, that if there isn't a, a tuk-tuk or a, or a, or a, or a motorbike or a car on it, there's a person on it squatting, eating, lying down, whatever. I've just never seen anything like that. And, uh, Doing trainings there across the Beam Centauri range, including Irish whiskey, was was brilliant, absolutely amazing. Um, so that was, yeah, that 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 was pretty cool. Um, another one which was, you know, uh, mind blowing, but in a in a different way, was a number of years ago, I met in Kilbegan a a roadie guy who works, you know, behind the scenes for rock bands. And his two major bands that he works for are um, uh, Springsteen and um, Bon Jovi. So when one's touring, he's, you know, when one's not touring, he's with the other one, if you know what I mean. And I think you, I think Doobie Brothers as well. So it's all pretty cool, you know, my style of music, you know, uh, maybe not yours, Matt, but certainly mine. Um, but uh, I got, got chatting to him one day down in Kilbegan and uh, we exchanged uh, emails and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we kept in touch every time he was in Ireland with one of the bands. If he could, he'd get down to Kilbegan for a few hours, literally spend about 5,000 euro on whiskey and then go back and you'd, uh, he'd, he'd be sharing it out amongst the band, amongst the, the roadies behind the, behind the stage and stuff like that. But I was in, I was in Montreal, I think, I think it was Montreal. It was certainly somewhere in Canada, somewhere in Quebec, Quebec, Mont Montreal, I think. And 
he uh, Bon Jovi were playing that night and I was doing a whiskey event and a whiskey show. So I just contacted him. I said, look, I've, I've, I've some great whiskeys down here. Um, if you want to swing by, come on down and uh, have some whiskeys. I said, no, I can't. I'm kind of behind now. I'm trying to get the keyboard set up, blah, 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 blah. But if you want to come to the gig tonight, I'll have a ticket for you at the, at the door. And I said, right, yeah, look, I'll bring some whiskeys and uh, I'll come see you, come see you at the gig. So I get to the door, have a few whiskeys, and uh, I, I ask at the will call from, for, for a ticket for, for John Cashman. I'm handed um, one, access all areas. <laughs> and a message from, uh, from Bill saying, John, I'm not sure what the seat is like that you have, but because it's one of the ones that just get released on the day, so it might be slightly restricted view. But if it is, use this access all areas and just go to the sound stage with the with the with the sound crew and just watch the gig from there. So it's like what? Uh, so I take the whiskeys, I go in, I stand beside beside the sound engineer for the uh, for the gig, and then uh, gig's over, and uh, myself and a, a colleague, uh, Matty. Um, we, we go backstage and uh, meet the band, bring the whiskey, find Bill, give him the whiskey. He's there sharing it out with, you know, Tico Torres is drinking Kilbegan. <laughs> you know, it's uh, bizarre stuff. But, uh, you know, great, great stories. So uh, two sides, two sides of my mind being blown with the brands. Absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the world of whiskey ambassadoring is full of kind of funny instances and stories like that. Maybe not as cool as that, but there's uh, <laughs> sure definitely there's definitely a lot of lot to be said. It's a, obviously a very you know social uh, job, and a, a, and interesting as well that you know not every personality I don't think is is overly suited to the role either. And um, you know, are there kind of people or or personality traits that you guys would have looked for in looking for your ambassadorial team, or would that have been kind of a Beam Centauri? global job rather than the irish side well the, i mean the, the graduate program um that we had in satori i introduced it i started with with cooley and put structure in place and uh you know there was a specific type of person that um i certainly was looking for and it's someone who can command an audience uh, and that's that's pretty much all i wanted um, they can be shy i'm personally very shy get me in social situations and i can be quite shy but get me in front of an audience, by God, I'm going to teach them about whiskey. You know, I, 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 I worked as a tour guide for years in, in college and school, and I suppose that's really where it comes from. I'm taking guided tours around Glen Block. And as I said once, if you can command the attention of, a, uh, of one of those uh, Spanish exchange summer school groups in Glen Block, you know, you can, you can survive anything. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I, I, I would have looked for, they don't have to be the loudest person in the room, but they need to be the person that people want to listen to, people want to hear from, people want to learn from. And that's that's always, always what I was looking for. And uh, over the years, you know, I've uh, certainly been involved with um, some very, very outstanding young graduates who thankfully you know have got a start working um working uh, with with Beam Centauri or even back in the old Cooley days and to see where they've gone since and to see the roles that they're moving into it's 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 quite it's I might be looking to them for for a job sometime soon you know uh, but it's uh no it's it, it's great to see that um it's a storytelling trait really and uh yeah just not being afraid to stick your neck out a bit being able to think on your feet, being able to, because things are going to get messed up um, at some stage and you're going to have to figure out, figure out a, a response. Classic one from, from my, from my, uh, uh, from my suitcase of stories is uh, try launching a brand that tells of a cocktail in Louisiana and uh, your product doesn't arrive. Uh, <laughs> you've literally spent, you know, twenty thousand dollars minimum getting this ready and the product is missing in louisiana you know it's 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 it was all hands on deck it was brand team it was my boss it was the pr agents it was everyone taking out a map hitting every liquor store within a 10 mile radius of of, uh, of downtown new orleans uh, trying to find 
uh, single grain whiskey. <laughs> it was, ah, oh, it was, uh, it was, yeah, heart stopping. But we got there. We did it. We did it. We launched it. Got great results. Got, you know, great coverage. It, it, it works out. But just because you're with one of the largest drinks companies in the world doesn't mean everything is going to go uh, as smoothly, you know. No, it was funny from from my suitcase of stories that you say not everything's going to go well. You know, it's thinking on your feet. There was uh, one of my first events working with Tullamore Jew in Pennsylvania. I was in Philadelphia on the East Coast and there was Whiskey Fest, Pennsylvania. First night, Philadelphia. And my my regional boss in, in Pennsylvania told me, it was like, I was like two weeks into the job and he was like, don't forget your passport. Don't forget your passport. Don't forget your passport. Because <laughs> when we go to Pittsburgh, it's in a casino. Uh, and you're going to need your passport to get in. And I went, yeah, not a problem. Finish up Whiskey Fest Philadelphia. Next morning, get into the car. It's a six-hour drive to Pittsburgh. Four hours into the drive, I realized I'd forgotten my passport. I'm not driving. There's like four other ambassadors in the car. They were like, well, we're not turning around. And I was like, yeah, that's not a problem. Okay, cool. So I'm breaking it. And I basically had to confidence man my way into this casino <laughs> and then hide i was like maybe six hours early for the event so i had to just take all of my gear and sit in the event room i set up my table and then like hid behind it plug my phone into the wall put on some headphones and watch netflix for like six hours <laughs> i remember i'll tell you the, the details of that story another time or if anyone wants to ask me when i'm not on the microphone um, but uh, i remember the boss coming in and looking at me and he goes i hear you forgot your passport and i was like yep and he goes well you're here so well yeah. done well done. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I think I checked into the hotel that night at like two thirty in the morning after everything was said and done at the event. It was uh, <laughs> it was a fun fun night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great stories. So I suppose this is a great time to kind of wind down. Um, I very much appreciated your time uh, and and all the stories and kind of recounting your your kind of work through the industry. And as you said, where I wish you best of luck or wherever you're going next. Thank um, you. And if people want to find you online, uh, where should they be looking on the social handles? Yeah, it's primarily Twitter I use. So it's uh, CashmanGBA. So C-A-S-H-M-A-N-G-B-A. Um, you'll get me on that. A little bit of Instagram, but I'm not uh, I'm not down with the pool kids yet. So uh, there's, a, there's a few updates from that time to time. But mostly... I had two stories up today on Instagram. So you're doing okay <laughs> there, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep up with you there, Maddie. <laughs> uh, perfect well i want to say a very big thanks to our sponsors uh cologne whiskey uh wd o'connell whiskeys and irishmalts.com and then for me if anybody wants to find me online potstilled.com uh on twitter and instagram is potstilled underscore and then facebook facebook.com forward slash potstilled and we would love any of the kind of shares likes and subscribes to help us ascend through all those different uh, podcast channels and help other people around the world find out about the wonderful world of irish whiskey so john i very much appreciate your time and i want to say a very big thank you for sitting down with me pleasure thank you maddie cheers for that cheers